All right, good morning, church. My name is Justin, one of the uh, pastors and elders here at Peninsula Grace. It's, it's good to be here with you, and we are here for that one purpose of lifting up His great name. Amen. We, um, we have been walking through this study in the book of Matthew, if, if you haven't been with us, and we're going to continue that today. And it is 2020, just in case you missed that, um, which means it's an election year. Um, and I got a big announcement to make to you this morning. Are you ready for this? And I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know if I was going to be ready to say this. I'm nervous. But um, I have decided um, that I, Justin Blake Franchino, am going to be running uh, for president of the United States of America. Yeah, yeah, you shouldn't cheer that. That's weird. Um, I, I was thinking about it. I'm a resident. Um, I'm 35 years old for this election cycle. I think that was the only thing that was holding me back from being qualified for president, right? Uh, so we're locked in. Now, if I was going to try and run for president, how would I campaign? Well, if you think about the way that the world would approach these kind of things, uh, it's 2020, so I'm going to build a social media campaign. Um, so I was going to go with the slogan, hashtag PJ for POTUS. That's Pastor Justin for president. Um, and I, okay, that won't work. All right. Um, I was thinking about rubbing shoulders with the political up-and-ups. Um, uh, Senator Machicki's come here a few times, so I'm going to try to get in with him. thought about moving to D.C., um, kind of get my name out there, up on billboards. i got to be in the right place at the right time with the right people uh, to be able to hobnob my way into the public eye and into the Oval Office. So here I come. Now, we think about the world, the way that we would approach campaigning for a position like president or king now we think about what we're reading in Matthew. The king says he has come. How, how is Jesus going to run his campaign for his kingship? Now, what he doesn't do, he doesn't do that. He doesn't build a social media campaign. I was trying out a couple hashtags for him. Hashtag make Israel great again. Uh, see how that would go. Hashtag Jesus 26 AD. Um, we, you know, he, he, what he didn't do, Jesus didn't move to the capital, Jerusalem where he'd be, have the most eyeballs on him. Uh, Jesus didn't hobnob with the political powers. In fact, and this wasn't a democracy, right? He, what Jesus also didn't do was just do a hostile takeover. He didn't build up an army to try to take on the Roman Empire by physical force. What did Jesus do? We're going to see the way that he launches his ministry is by announcing an extremely unpopular message. Repent. I mean, that's not a good campaign trail speech. You all are sinners, right? Vote for me. That's not going to work. Jesus starts in the, the, the places in the middle of nowhere with the least popular people healing the sick and the marginalized society. Good luck with that campaign, Jesus. But what we're going to see is that Jesus actually launches the, the most successful royal campaign of of all time, in the history of mankind. In fact, today, in 2020, we are living proof of this, and over the last 2,000 years, people have been bending the knee to Jesus, following him as king. So maybe we should pay attention to the way Jesus approaches this. We've been studying the book of Matthew. Um, we're calling this series, The King and His Kingdom. Um, as Eric had invited you to, grab a, a copy of our reading plan, our, our prayer calendar in the back, or, or find it online um, at our website and the homepage. And um, we're calling this message, The King and His Kingdom. And we're starting to see, now that we're a few chapters in, we're starting to see an outline develop. And in the first three and a half chapters, we've seen a prologue, sort of an introduction into what Matthew's going to be telling us. We saw the arrival of the king. And this king, this promised Messiah, was coming to offer a new beginning, a new start, 
a new hope for all of mankind. And what have we seen in these first few weeks? Well, we saw Jesus' family line at the very beginning of Matthew 1. We saw that he is the right heritage from the line of Abraham and King David, as had been prophesied. Then we saw Jesus' birth, that he did not come from man, but ultimately came from God himself, which he had to be to be a perfect man, to give us his life, to die for us, had to have life to begin with. And then we saw Jesus' baptism. The Father approves, declares him publicly the one who has come, my son in whom I am well pleased. And then last week, we saw Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And what Adam could not do back in the garden, what Israel failed to do in the wilderness, Jesus did. By trusting his Father, saying no to the lies of the devil, he showed and qualified himself as the right man for the job to come and be our Savior. And what we're going to see today as we turn a corner in the rest of Matthew 4 through 7, this is the first of five parts we're going to see in this movement of Matthew. We're going to see Jesus announce his kingdom. And as we wrap up the second half here of chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus do three things in this kingdom announcement. The first one will be the king's message, what he has to tell everybody, the king's method, how he's going to start this kingdom movement, and then third, the king's ministry, what does he do to start this Process. If you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in the ESV uh, version today. The first one, the king's message. Let's look at verse 12. Matthew says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, why the detail here? Why does he tell us this, this happened to this point? Well, it's a time marker. This is a year into Jesus' ministry by most accounts. Scholars would agree that Jesus spent three years of ministry uh, time. Now, the first year was more of this year of what they call obscurity, where he wasn't very well known. Um, And then the second year, his popularity starts to grow. His fame starts to travel as he heals, as he does these works, these teaches. And then this last year is this year of increasing rejection that will ultimately lead to the crucifixion of this Messiah. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, called the Synoptic Gospels, they don't deal with the first year of obscurity. It's only in John chapters 1 through 4 that we hear about this first year. And it's at the end of this first year that John's ministry ends. He is arrested and eventually is beheaded. It's now going to be Jesus' time to come. His public ministry has begun. Now, in this, it says, verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, why did Jesus leave Nazareth in the first place? Matthew just tells us that he did. But Luke tells us why. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in one of the synagogues preaching. He's preaching from Isaiah chapter 61. And when he gets to the end of this chapter, it's about the Messiah, he looks at them all and he says, that's me. Now, this is his hometown. And all the people, the locals go, no, it's not. You're just the carpenter's son. You're Joseph's kid. That's blasphemy. And they pick him up and try to throw him off a cliff. Jesus takes the very subtle hint that he's not welcome there, and he leaves. If you guys ever get to the point where you're trying to throw me off a cliff because of my messages, I'll know it's time for Jill and I to start looking for new real estate somewhere else and move along. So, so here's John thrown into prison, Jesus being threatened to be thrown off a cliff. This is, not, this is not a great way to start a campaign. But that's not why Jesus leaves Nazareth. Matthew tells us Jesus is not running in fear from, from these attackers. Look at what it says in verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
The reason he goes to Capernaum is not because man's chasing him, but God, God told him where to go. We just saw in the temptation last week in the wilderness, he will always trust his father. He will always do what he's told to do. He will always go where he's told to go. And so he goes there, and this prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled. And here's the prophecy. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so Jesus comes and in this prophecy associates himself with the Messiah. He says, I've come to shine a light where it is dark, to bring life where there has been nothing but death. And what is his message that he brings in the midst of this? He says in verse 17, Isaiah chapter 9 is the reference there. Uh, Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus' central theme, his central message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does that mean? What, What is Jesus saying there? When we often hear the word heaven, what do we think of? We think of the place up in the sky, right? The sweet by and by, somewhere very far away from here. We envision pearly gates, streets of gold. We envision the chubby angels up on clouds, blowing trumpets. We're going to have this vision in our head of a place where just precious moments threw up. And that's the location of of the kingdom of, of heaven. Now, here's the problem with that. He says that this kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. That word means nearby. It's, it's right here. It approaches. So that can't be, that doesn't fit with his message. He's not saying that place far away is now, uh, now here, right? So what does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is a synonymous term in the Gospels with the kingdom of God. And we said that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and they so revered the name of Yahweh that they wouldn't even speak his name. So instead of saying kingdom of God, they use a euphemism, kingdom of heaven. So what he's really saying is God's kingdom is here. Now, what does it mean for God's kingdom to be here? Well, the word kingdom, it means an effective area of, of rule. Been binge-watching The Crown recently, and uh, you look back in the 1950s at the, at the rule of the British Empire, and it wasn't just the little islands collected up there in the UK. You see on the map all these red countries and areas. These were areas under the effective rule of the Crown that did what the crown said to do, that lived the way the crown said to live under its power. So God's kingdom, God's kingdom is where his will and reign effectively rule. It's it's where God is obeyed and received as the king. Now on earth at that time, just as you see most of the place here today, that is not the case. Man's will reigned, sin and death reigned. So what would this mean? It would mean a new kingdom. This means revolution. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. We all, I really thought that was going to catch on. Didn't work in the first service, and it totally flopped there. All right. So the context of a revolution. Rome had conquered Jesus' homeland for the past 60 years before Jesus had been born. And that was just a long line of empires to do so. Before Rome, there was Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Israel being handed off like an oppressed baton. For hundreds of years, they've known nothing but bondage and slavery and misery under this foreign rule. So the Jews, they, they understandably resented this 
and longed for a chance to revolt, right? We're not gonna take it. No, we ain't gonna take it. Okay, you guys know that one a little bit. All right, you can repent of that later. Um, But it wasn't just freedom that they longed for from Rome. What do they want? They believed, and they were God's chosen nation. They had been promised a king to come and rescue them and not just rule Israel, but rule through Israel over the entire world. This was the promise. Again, he quoted what? Isaiah chapter 9. What did we say last week? Go back and read the rest of the chapter. And and here's what it says about this coming Messiah, this king. Isaiah chapter 9. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. And on the rod on, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on that on the day of Midian. So here comes a king that's going to release them from this oppression that they've suffered for hundreds of years. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. We know this from our Christmas prophecy. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We need our box turners up here from the kids' program, right? Mighty God, Prince of Peace. We got the Verse 7, the dominion will be vast and in its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David. Remember, he's going to come from his line. And over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. So what do we see here? This promise that the Messiah would come and bring a great light. This king would rule over Israel and the world bringing justice and, and peace that he would turn an upside-down world right side up again. This is the kingdom that their people have been longing for, praying for, dying for, for hundreds of years. And he says, this kingdom is at hand. This, this word, this phrase, it means it has come. It's near, it approaches, it's knocking on your door. So this is great news, right? The king has finally come. The oppression is going to be over. And the peasants rejoice. Yay. The, the king is here. But if the king is here, why does Jesus lead this message off with the word repent? He says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent means to change one's mind. Think about it. It's like a mental U-turn. It says you were thinking and behaving and going in this direction. You need to stop, turn around, and go the exact opposite direction. Now, if you're Israel and you're hearing that, you go, no, no, wait a second. It's the other nations. It's the pagan nations that need to repent, not me, right? We're, we're on team Jesus. We're with the Messiah. We're supposed to take the bad guys out. So what's he saying here? Well, Jesus came to bring a kingdom of light, and he believed clearly in what he's saying here. It was not just the other nations that needed to repent. His own people needed to repent. You see, they wanted a revolution like we usually think about a revolution. What's the first phrase that comes to your mind when you hear the word revolution? For most of us, it'd be the Revolutionary War. And what happened in the Revolutionary War? We resisted the occupying forces and, and kicked them out through what? Through physical, through a war, through fighting and killing, we revolted against England. Now, is this, is this what they're being called to? All of the prior movements of the Jewish people had involved the sword. You, you may have heard the Maccabean re- revolt. It's what we celebrate, what they celebrate Hanukkah from. And, and over the years, they had tried by physical force to take back their land. But what Jesus says here is, I'm not calling you to fight darkness with darkness. Jesus comes and calls to bring, is called to bring God's light into the darkness. You see, God's 
kingdom, his will, his way, was not to end fighting and killing with more fighting and killing. That's a self-defeating proposition. Jesus knew that what they needed to be freed from was not primarily the oppression from Rome, but the oppression of sin in their own hearts. That what needed to change was not what happened out on the battlefield, but what happened inside of each and every one of them. And that the best way to change societies and change nations was to change the human individual heart. I love what N.T. Wright says. Jesus' message to his own people is stop rushing toward the cliff edge of a violent revolution and instead go the other way. That's repentance, right? Toward God's kingdom of light and peace and healing and forgiveness. Because his kingdom of light will shine not by taking lives, but by giving up of one's own life. You want to change the world? It's not going to be through wars and voting booths. It's going to be through changed hearts. And it starts with mine. And the light in individuals, as the light continues to spread, will eventually brighten up the whole place. So how is Jesus going to go about this? How is he going to change the hearts of people? What is his method for carrying out this message? Well, number two walks us through that, the king's method. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed them. Now, we're familiar with this story. We just talked about it during Mission Month. But if you step back for a second, this is pretty bizarre, isn't it? You think about you're just fishing one day, and some dude whistles at you. I can't, I can't actually do that. Uh, and, and you just quit and follow him around. What? Stranger danger, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm at my office on Monday morning, typing up the next sermon, some dude pops in, says, close your laptop, follow me into my car, we're going to go catch people. <laughs> I don't go, oh, yeah, that's normal, let's go, right? No, I'm calling the police, right? But there are a couple factors here that help make sense of this story and show us that Jesus isn't just some weird Pied Piper. First of all, this is not these people's first, these guys' first encounter with Jesus. They'd actually met him a year earlier. In John chapter 1, remember that first year skipped over by Matthew, Andrew is shown to actually be one of John the Baptist's disciples before he was one of Jesus' disciples. And he's there at the baptism of Jesus. He, and he's so taken by Jesus and what John says about Jesus that, and I love this scene, he just literally starts following Jesus when he walks away. And Jesus kind of turns and looks at him and he's like, uh, uh where are you staying? And Jesus invites him and spends the day with Andrew. Can you imagine? I mean, how cool would that have been to spend a day with physical Jesus? We look forward to that one day, amen? And so then he goes and he's so by Jesus that he tells his brother Peter about Jesus. And we know that they worked closely with John and James. And so there's no reason to think that these four men didn't already know Jesus. They had known about him and his teaching and his ways for a full year. But here... What he's calling them to do is, is to step out of the family business and to follow him full time. Jesus says it's, it's time to launch this kingdom message and ministry. Come follow me. The other thing to note this time is this was a very common practice for, for a student 
or a follower to come alongside what they would call a rabbi or a teacher. And they'd ask them, and what they would do is they'd sort of enter into this. It wasn't like a classroom like we think of today. It was more of an apprenticeship. And they would follow them around. They'd go wherever they'd go. They'd do whatever they did. They'd learn from them on, on the job. Now, the cool thing here is, though, is that most of the time, culturally, it was the student that would approach the rabbi and ask to follow him. But what do we know about our God? The gospel, the good news, is that God initiated the rescue plan that he came to us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We did not initiate and approach God. We cannot. He came to us. So what Jesus is launching here is an upside-down kingdom with an upside-down method. It's only fitting. Think about it this way. Jesus spent 33 years on earth. It's not a long time. And out of those 33 years, he only spent three of them on his public mission. So what does he do with these three precious years to launch a new beginning for all of mankind, the most important revolution that would ever be known to the history of mankind? For those three years, he spent the majority of his time walking around with these 12 men. (laughs) Most of his teaching is not to large crowds, but these 12 and a a slightly larger group that would follow him around from time to time. And these, these were ordinary guys. They, they didn't, most of them lacked a formal education. Most of them were disgraced in, in some way, tax collectors and fishermen. These were not the societal up and ups. And then as they followed Jesus, they started to get labeled as outcasts, as revolutionaries, and not in a positive sense. And they all turn out to be a bunch of babies. When Jesus gets arrested, they all run for the hills. Yet, it was through these 12 ordinary men that he would change the world. And what we see in the book of Acts, these guys change. I mean, if you talk about turn and go the other way, all of a sudden these men start boldly proclaiming the good news. They start healing. They die for Jesus. What's the difference? Jesus himself, his spirit now lives inside of them and completely changes their lives. That's what he wants to do in us too. He says the invitation here to these guys is follow me, follow me. Jesus didn't take them into a classroom, do seminars. He didn't take them to a boot camp. What he invited them into was the life that he lived. He said, walk with me, eat with me, go on donkey road trips with me. I want you to to live life with me in the context of the daily rhythms. And what did he do? He taught them. We know way more is caught than than taught. He, He does it alongside of them. And what does he teach them? How to love people, how to serve people, how to handle conflict, how to treat the poor, how to have a correct view of money and sex and and power and government. He's preparing them for the right kind of revolution. And what he calls them into is to be fishers of men. Now, this was actually not a term that Jesus originated. He usually, you'll see in his parables, he just uses the the terms and and ways of the the locals to be able to communicate with them. This word was one that was used by Roman Roman and Greek philosophers all the time. Um, It it meant to catch others by teaching and persuasion. This is also where the popular dance originated, where you do the the thing like that. This is where it came from. I didn't know if you knew that. These are the insights that your pastor gives to you. Um, Jesus was changing the focus of their lives. He he, he was taking their eyes off of themselves and on to other people. He said, I want you to be fishers of people. Their central mission, the reason their heart was to beat, was to reach the lost and to see hearts and lives changed as we ushered citizens into the kingdom of light, freeing them not from Roman oppression, 
but the oppression of sin in their own hearts. These four disciples, they show us the radical nature of what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. See, when Jesus gives them this call and says, follow me, they don't respond with, well, Jesus, it's a busy season, right? I mean, the fish are coming in just now, and we know how that is in Alaska, right? Kids just started up soccer. Like, it's just not a good time for us, right? And then they, they give them the Christian no, which is, we'll pray about it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the polite way that the Jesus followers say no. But what do they say to him? Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately. And when they left their boat, this wasn't just their, their Saturday fun on the lake cruiser. Their boat was their vocation. It was their source of income. And they left their father. And not just relationship. Most of the time, this was a, this was a family business that they were engaged in. Imagine walking away from the slope, from the classroom, the hospital, where, wherever it is that you work. Jesus came to redefine work and family. He says it's, much, it's about a much larger work and family than when we are currently involved in that I want you to be about. It's a mission and a life that defines us even more than our career and our biological family. Now, what does this mean for us? Like, to apply this to our lives, to follow Jesus, does that mean we have to quit our jobs? That we have to abandon our family? That we stop showing up at Christmas gatherings? Some of you were like, yes, Lord, send me. Right, and that's not nice of you. Um, no, Jesus is calling 12 specific men to a specific thing for a specific amount of time. But here's the principle that we pull out of this. What was important is that they did what their king told them to do. And so we ask ourselves, are we doing what the king has told us to do? See, following Jesus, being a part of his kingdom, his way, his rule, does mean prioritizing people. It does mean that the reason we live here on earth for this short amount of time is to reach the lost, to see lives changed, people freed from the bondage of sin and death and brought into God's kingdom. That should be more important to us than early retirement, than financial security, than being comfortable and having a good weekend and making sure we have all the entertainment, right? All the streaming services. We got Disney Plus. I just got Disney Minus, so I'm a step ahead of all of you guys. Wow, you're a tough crowd today. All right. <laughs> Let me ask you this way. What is the focus of your life? Like Jesus, we're here for a few precious years, and we're called to spend it well. We say that salvation is free, and that's true. The reason we're justified before our God is because of what Jesus did for us. There was nothing we could do to earn that. It cost us nothing, and it cost him everything. But the call into our lives is far beyond just get saved, so you go up to that place in the sky. The call is to see a complete life change. The call is to see follow Jesus and do whatever he tells us to do, and that costs us everything. Again, not that we earn it, but what we're doing is to become like him and to follow him. We give it all up. And what we're going to find, what is he going to say? When you give up your life, that's actually where you find it. It's more than worth it. Everything apart from Jesus is worth nothing. But as we follow him, we're actually going to find the beauty of everything else that he did give us. See, Jesus models for us that the best use of our time, the best way to revolutionize the world, to bring a, a kingdom of light into this dark, dark place, is to follow him. 
to follow him and invite others to drop their nets and do the same. That sounds upside down, doesn't it? But it's Jesus' way. To make deep friendships that are centered around following Jesus together. I remember my mentor Larry, when I was first starting here at the church, and he was talking to me about how to approach ministry. And, and he said, you make it simple, you keep it about two things, being in the Word and being with people. And he said, man, your preaching is very important because you're declaring the Word of God, and it's the Word that frees people. So, but he said, what's actually, the, the way you're going to make a bigger, more long-lasting kingdom impact isn't actually to the crowds you're preaching to on Sunday mornings. It's the two or three relationships that you pour yourself into life on life, walking with those men, being in the word together, confessing sin to each other, encouraging each other in the world, seeing our lives change as we follow Jesus together. Because you know what's going to happen if those two or three guys each then go out and disciple two or three guys who go out and disciple two or before you know it, we have multiplied a kingdom of light movement. He says, that's how you're going to revolutionize the world, just like Jesus did. This was his method of a revolution for the kingdom of light. And what does he do? What do we see Jesus doing in King's ministry? Last point, and we'll be done. Verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Two central things we'll see in Jesus' ministry over and over again. He's teaching slash proclaiming, right? It's, it's a declaration of the truth, and then we see him healing. Now, this healing, there was two purposes in this healing. Number one, it showed that he had the authority to say what he said. It's a way to prove that he is the Messiah, as he claimed, through signs and wonders. The other reason that he heals is to give a foretaste of glory divine. Jesus loves people. He does not want to see them in any sort of oppression. And so what he does is he comes and he shows that there is a place and a time where there will be no more disease or death or decay. This points us forward to that one glorious day in Revelation 24. It tells us the spoiler alert of what's coming our way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There is no one in this room that hasn't been touched by death. And maybe somebody today needs to hear this word. There's a day coming when there will no longer be crying and pain and grief where we will not receive comfort from our Father, and what's so beautiful here is just like in Genesis, what's happening? The word of God is speaking, and what's happening through his breath, just like when he breathed into Adam and he became alive, the word of God again is speaking and proclaiming the good news, and he's turning death into reverse. He's he's giving life. Wherever Jesus went, he's healing people. He's mending what was broken. He's showing how he is going to start a brand new thing, the restoration of all things. Verse 24, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now imagine their world. Imagine a world where there was no modern medicine like today, where people are dying from toothaches and the common cold. Everybody is affected by these daily sicknesses. And no wonder that he pulls in crowds, right? I mean, I think our Sunday attendance would start going up too if I was healing everybody that came in. I've got to go to that guy's church, right? 
What we'll see, is, though, is that Jesus isn't interested in, in gathering crowds just for the healing. He wants to see people come and be repentant and believe in him and be freed from the larger oppression, the sin of their hearts. Give it all up and follow him. He's not just trying to impress people with, with these magic tricks to, to, get, to boost his, his Sunday morning numbers. Jesus is gathering them to teach them the most important truths that they will ever hear to truly set them free. And in verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, what's interesting here is it says the great crowds followed him. Same word that it used of his disciples who also followed him. But there's a difference between some of those who just followed Jesus because of what they could get from him in the immediate and those who committed their lives to him as the king and lord of their lives, his disciples. And so I ask myself, how am I following Jesus? Am I just looking for, for another thing to manipulate to get my way? That Jesus might be my good luck charm so that I do better at work, do better at home, do better at whatever. I just try to use him to get what I want? Or am I following Jesus because I find him and his way more lovely than anything else in the entire world? And notice how he ends this. They followed him from where? These, these different locations. And to us, this just might seem like a bunch of random names. But imagine, uh, look, the map kind of helps. You have a map in, in the back of your Bible. Always go back and look at the places. It can be interesting sometimes. He says um, they came from Galilee, which, in, remember, these are little provinces that had been divided up over the Roman Empire at this time. And so Galilee, is, it's northwest. Decap is northeast. Judea was the province in the southwest. Beyond the Jordan, referring to the areas beyond in the southeast. And then where is Jerusalem? It's right in the middle of it all. What is he saying? People are following Jesus from everywhere. And they would, have, they would have gathered that. It's like if I told you from sea to shining sea. Right? We know that that means the encompassing coasts of our, of our nation. Then Alaska's out here doing our own thing. But what he's saying is that Jesus came for everyone. Remember, he came to be what Israel wasn't. A light, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. For God so loved the whole world. Everyone needs to hear this news that the king is here. And he has brought life and life for all who will believe. Jesus announces his kingdom, and he, and, he, and he does it. He introduces the greatest revolution of all in the history of mankind in the most upside-down way possible. He does not do it through politics. He does not do it through war. He, he does not do it through a popularity contest. He picks a few ordinary men and shows them how to love other people more than themselves. He teaches and he heals and through his word, he starts to see the, the, the curse of death reversed, bringing light and life. This is Jesus' method, method for spreading his message that the kingdom of light is dawning. Ordinary people who will change the world as they follow him through the daily little unimportant aspects of their life. That's his revolution. And it's been effectively changing our world for 2,000 years. Now, what does this look like in our life daily, practically? How do we live the way that this king, God's kingdom would call us to live with him as king? Well, starting next week, we're going to unpack Jesus' teaching on exactly this. We're going to spend the next six weeks in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I can't wait to dive into it together. Let's pray. Father, we know, I know in a room this size that when we speak of death, and crying, and pain, and suffering, and oppression, 
that many different people in many different ways are tracking. We know on many different levels we are experiencing the dominion of darkness. We see what's happening overseas in the Middle East, and it breaks our hearts. We see what's happening right here in our own homes and marriages and families and and, and inside of our own hearts. And that ought to break our hearts too. Father, it's a dark world. And we're hurting and we experience pain and death and suffering. But the good news that we need to hear this morning is that the king has come. And his kingdom is near. And he has brought life and light. And everywhere Jesus goes... Now through his followers here, we bring, we speak words of truth that can offer people hope beyond the grave, that can give them a strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. And Father, as we look at Jesus' method, we pray that we would be a people who would follow him as those first fishermen did, that, that we would leave everything behind in the sense that we would prioritize your way above any selfish things that have always led to dead ends anyway. Father, may we be your followers and follow you not just for what we can get from you selfishly, but because we see that your way is the better way and that you are the only treasure that will always satisfy. May we live our lives on mission for you, that you would show us the way forward, how to live, how to be freed from sin ourselves, and how to bring people into that same freedom that we would prioritize our time discipling others, building the kind of relationships where we are seeing the dead raised and sending them out to go call more people into the rescue boat. Father, we have a short vapor here on earth. May we spend it well. It's in the name of your life-giving, light-bringing Son's name that we pray. Amen.